Now to Matthew 19. Um, one of the effects, not of Matthew 19, but of COVID-19 in the UK has been the extra pressure that's been placed on everybody. It's been harder to get food. It's been harder to move around. There's been so many restrictions. Those of us in the workplace, you've had to get used to uh, flexible working conditions and life has just become a lot more inconvenient. But although everything looks the same, everything has changed. It's the world in which we live. One of the things that social commentators, people on the radio and who write books and the newspapers have noted is the sheer pressure that it's put on relationships. Whether we're married, whether we're um, to be married, whether we're single, whatever condition we find ourselves in, relationally, there is a new pressure that uh, COVID-19 in the last three months has placed upon us. Matthew 19 talks about the relationship of marriage and uh, the nature of divorce and what it's like to be single. And we're going to look at all three of those things very uh, superficially because of time, sadly. But it's clearly got a lot to say about marriage and divorce. And we want to hear what Jesus says. It's widely recognised in the modern UK that divorce, divorce accounts for up to or just under half of all relationship breakdown. 42% of marriages ended in divorce, according to the uh, statistics in 2019. It's very unlikely if you're a primary school age child that your parents will be together for the duration of your time in primary school. And increasingly, uh, there's a trend that there is an older demographic of people getting divorced. So the, the, the most, the significant band of relationship breakdown is between 45-year-olds and 49-year-olds, where in previous decades it was a lot younger. So people are getting divorced later, and there's lots of reasons for that. But Jesus has said in Matthew 18, relationships are a mess worth making. The gospel impacts our relationship in a very real way. And Jesus has just ended a significant block of teaching on relationships in the church. And, and what he's got to say here in Matthew 19 is also significant. It's really at least two sermons in one. And so I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of the chapter as we walk through it. But it's right not to separate Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce or divorce and on singleness because they all flow and are glued together. So let's begin by looking at marriage. What does Jesus say from Matthew 19 about marriage? Jesus, first point, teaches us about the essence of marriage. Jesus teaches us about the essence of marriage. Well, well what is the essence of something? The essence of something is what makes it it. So what's the essence of marriage? What makes a marriage marriage? Some people would say, well, marriage is about love and affection. Someone else would say, well, marriage, it's about uh, children. It's about creating a family unit. It's about multiplication, if you can do that. And here in uh, Matthew 19, verse 5, Jesus says, well, this is the essence of marriage. He gets right to the very core. Look at sentence 5 with me, please. Jesus says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Uh, the word cleave here is the very essence of marriage. The word cleave literally means separation to make a new thing. And it's making a new thing because of a covenant, because of a covenant relationship. To cleave is to make a covenant relationship in a public setting. There are uh, words 
exchange, words of absolute commitment and faithfulness. And you're not married until that's happened in a public setting. You can't get married in private. And those people who are waiting to get married during lockdown have found this very frustrating. It's not just uh, men and women who get married. God gets married. In Ezekiel 16, verse 8, uh, God in the Old Testament describes his relationship to his people as a covenant of marriage. It's a very moving chapter, Ezekiel chapter 16. He says this, I married you, Israel. When you were of age, I covered you with the corner of my robe. I made vows to you. I pledged my faithfulness to you. When you were of age, I made you mine. I took all the running. I made all the initiative, but I made a public declaration of what I would do. The promises I would make and keep for you going on into the future. That's the essence of marriage. You see, it's not primarily about love and affection and, and children. It's about commitment. Now, let's apply this before we move forward. When a couple come to me and say we want to get married, very often I say, please, would you go away and uh, write your own vows? It's very rare as people write their own vows that they, well, it's very revealing about their understanding of marriage and what it is. It's very rare that people come back to me with vows that talk about the future. Most of them talk about uh, affections and the present. I love you. I love you now. I think you're beautiful. I think you're great. It's important affection words, but that doesn't really get to the heart of marriage, not to its essence. The essence of marriage, you see, is a future-centered promise. That's what a wedding is. A wedding is a forward-facing event. It's a covenant ceremony saying, I might love you now, but I promise that I will love you in the future. I love you for better and for worse in sickness and in health. I once said in sickness and in death at a wedding, but less said about that, the better. It's a forward-facing, a future-centric promise-making event. It's a covenant where we say, I will love you now, but I will love you no matter what the future holds. That's what it means to cleave to someone. To cleave is a future-focused covenant ceremony. It's a marriage. That's the essence of marriage. And in a wedding, you're promising future love. You're promising covenant love until death parts you. I promise to be tended to you now. That's easy because we're young and we're hip and we're beautiful and we're as good as we're going to get. But not only that, someone at marriage says, I promise to love you in the future. No matter what happens, I'll be next to you. No matter what you say, I will love you and I will hear you. Whether it's easy words for me to hear or hard ones, I will be affectionate to you. I will be faithful to you no matter what. I will forsake others to love you today, but even more importantly, on into the future. That's the, uh, the essence of marriage. It's a covenant ceremony. But what's the purpose? What's the purpose of marriage? If it's a covenant ceremony that's future focused, what's the purpose of marriage? It's another way of saying why. Why get married? Look at sentence five again. It's these three words that point back to what Jesus says, the sentence before. Jesus says, verse five, for this reason. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, will be joined to his 
wife. If you look back for this reason, that means we go back to verse four, because Jesus, with his words that have preceded sentence five, explains why you get married. And he points us back to Genesis. He says in verse four, male and female, he, God, created them. So Jesus is referring back to this strange and wonderful passage in Genesis chapter two, where Adam was created by God. So the only time when uh, there was something in all of the created order that God was not satisfied with. Every realm and creation has its kingdom, uh, or every uh, realm rather has its kings. There's the, the kings of the night sky, there's the moon, there's the king of the daytime, that's the sunshine. There's uh, the realm of the seas and the fish that God has created, the kings to live in them. And then there's the created order that's wonderful because God is a good and powerful and orderly and imaginative and all-powerful God. But there was one thing that God wasn't happy with. He says, it's not good that man is alone. I want to create a partner for him, someone for him to treasure and love someone who will satisfy him, someone that will be his equal in dignity, but have different roles. Adam was a king, a king-like character that God had made, a real person in history. But God says, you need an equal. You need someone to rule and reign with you. If the essence of marriage is covenant, the why, the purpose of marriage is deep friendship. It's deep friendship. Deep friendship that goes on into the future that makes us more like Jesus. I mean, no one in the animal kingdom could do that for Adam. And so Eve was formed to become his friend. When Adam saw Eve, he broke out into poetry and said, wow, she's beautiful. But not just that she's beautiful. I see myself in her. I see my equal in her. I see dignity in God's goodness because he made her for me and me for her. So the essence of marriage is a covenant, but the purpose of marriage is deep friendship. A deep friend is made for Adam in the person of Eve. And he says, at last, someone for me to love and treasure and enjoy, someone to call me out, someone to check me. I love you so much, Eve. This deep affection is only temporary, but deep friendship lasts. There's nakedness to be enjoyed. It's deep vulnerability emotionally, so much more than physically. Psychological openness. This is what I'm afraid of, Eve. I want you to know me deeply, but sin ruined everything. And so shame entered the world. Shame entered the uh, created order. Doesn't get any better what God made in the person of Eve for Adam. And let's uh, flesh that out, pun intended. What does that mean? What does it show very superficially? If you're a single person, it means this. If you're a single person, don't be tempted to pursue a marriage partner if you're a Christian. Don't be tempted to pursue a marriage partner with whom you can't share your whole self. Don't pursue a marriage partner unless that person is someone with whom you can share your whole self and central to your whole self, whether you're single or whether you're married or whether you're divorced, has to be a personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't pursue someone that doesn't have a personal walk with Jesus. It won't be a healthy, strong, God-centered marriage. If you're married, if the essence of marriage is friendship, Stephen Hurdle put it like this. 
it's very easy to it's very easy to be involved in a marriage relationship and resort to predictive text to finish your loved one's sentences. That can be affectionate, but it can also be a sign of you're getting bored with one another. You just want the sentence to end. You, you're happy to interrupt. You'll stop treasuring what your wife or husband has to say, and you think you know best, so you cut them off midstream, mid-sentence. You know what they're going to say, and you can say it quicker, and you can say it better. You're a married person. Can I say to you this morning, try not to do that. Try not to do that with all your effort. Treasure your husband. Treasure your wife. Risk opening up yourself again and again to the person with whom you walk, with the person with whom you're married to. It's very hard work. And it's so easy to neglect one another, especially in lockdown. It's so ironic. We've got more time together, but marriages are under new pressures and we can neglect one another. We can uh, want to avoid godly confrontation or carefrontation. And so we work longer hours, we get in the garden and we keep fit, all of which are good things. But really, we're just avoiding the person under whose roof we share. There are things you don't want to bring up anymore because you know it might bring up some, it might bring some heat and not only light. There's some things that when you share, some deep things that you shared with your husband or your wife, they laughed at you, so you're never going to go there again. But Jesus says, and God says, as far as you can, work towards a place as much as you're able to, where you can confess real things to one another, where you can talk to one another, where you enjoy one another's company, where you share with what makes you laugh and your partner knows what makes you cry. Do everything you can to get to that deep level of honesty and openness. That's what a marriage is. It's, it's deep friendship that gets better with age like a fine wine. So the essence of marriage is a covenant and the purpose of marriage is deep friendship. But what's the priority? The priority of marriage is seen in verse five as well. A man will leave his father and mother and be cleaved, separated, joined to his wife. More than any other relationship, marriage has a power because of the fact that it's the primordial relationship. Think about the relationship God formed in Eden centuries, decades, thousands of years ago. God chose to form a woman from a man. He put a man and a woman in the garden. He did not put a parent and a child in the garden. He did not put two people of the same sexuality in a garden. You put a man and a woman in the garden. It's, it's a priority, the relationship of marriage. A marriage, therefore, has such power because it's a God-ordained relationship for, for the flourishing of healthy societies. And marriage has a power that no other relationship has. If your marriage is weak, but you're surrounded by relationships that are strong, you will still go into the world a weak person. But if your marriage is strong and the relationships around you are weak at work and at the school gate and in the retirement home, you can still go forward as a person of strength. Marriage has that amount of power because it's the relationship that God made in the very beginning. That's the positive angle, but here's the negative angle. If the person to whom you're married says that you're ugly, it doesn't matter if everyone says you're beautiful, that word will stay with you forever. 
but then everyone else can say that you're ugly. But if your loved one says you're beautiful, that stays with you forever. It's the power of marriage. Marriage has that amount of power, that amount of weight and freight behind it, because it's the primordial relationship that God made for the flourishing of human society. Now, in light of all of that, we need to talk about divorce, because this passage does. But it's very important to not separate divorce from marriage, from what Jesus says about singleness, from divorce and marriage. So let's move to divorce. If that is what marriage is, that God has ordained, what's divorce? Divorce, divorce is like amputation. What do I mean? Look at verse six with me. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder is an older way of saying it, or let not man separate. On the screen, you can see a picture of a, a Victorian surgeon experimenting on some poor soul on the table. I'm glad I wasn't there because needles make me wilt at the need. But that word asunder that we see in verse six or separate is so important to our understanding of what divorce is. We live in a time where just under 50% of marriages end in divorce. We live in a time where divorce is socially been normalized. It's a natural thing. And it's recognized that there will probably be a rise, a spike in the number of divorce uh, cases that will happen because of the pressure that COVID-19 has placed on our relationships. But if you understand verse six and the primacy and the power of marriage, it helps us to understand the seriousness of divorce. It's very, very serious. It's not like taking off your clothes or changing your hat when you change your marriage partner one to another and so on. Marriage is far more like, it's like amputation. I mean, notice the glue language in verse six. Do you see who does the joining? This is not a super glue. This is not a wood glue. This is not an epoxy resin that you can mix together like Aerodyne because it's so strong and joins two services together. Verse six says, relationally speaking, verse six, therefore God has joined. That's the glue word. God has joined. What therefore God has joined, let no one separate. The glue of God is that strong, which means it's not like taking off clothes or changing your hat or changing your makeup or changing your car when a marriage breaks down sadly and a divorce happens it's far more like it's far more like amputation and jesus says these three things as he teaches on divorce in the sermon on the mountain in matthew 19 and paul in 1 corinthians 7 as well three bullet points divorce it can be done divorce it does happen divorce it can be survived but it's never something to be entered into lightly. It's very, very serious. It's not like changing your clothes. It's far more like amputation. I mean, think about a doctor, think about a surgeon, and uh, he loves, well, his cure for everything is amputation. Just imagine you go in and, and there's, a, there's a mole that needs to be removed off your hand. I've got an idea. This is the greatest cure. You need to have your hand removed. You'll be amputated. You'll be an amputee. You'll lose your right hand for the rest of your life, but you'll be saved from skin cancer because of your mole. Imagine that. He'd be struck off, wouldn't he? Or should be. Imagine that uh, you've got a verruca on your left foot 
And the same surgeon says, oh, well, you could use bazooka, but actually my preferred means in this situation is to lop off your foot. I hope you don't mind, but it means the verruca won't trouble you anymore. Silly examples to show the severity of divorce. It's so serious because of the power and the goodness of marriage. It's not something you enter into lightly or carelessly. But actually, it's also not life-threatening. It's not something you enter into lightly. It's so serious. But sometimes Jesus moves on to say divorce is necessary for life. Divorce is necessary for life. It's serious, but sometimes it's necessary. Look at uh, sentence seven, and we stick with the uh, image of amputation. Look at verse seven. There's Pharisees come back to Jesus and they question him. Well, then, if that's how serious divorce is, if it's like amputation, my words, why did Moses grant a bill of divorce? Jesus answers straight away, verse eight, because of the hardness of your heart. Even though God meant marriage to be permanent, to be lasting, Jesus says, because sin has entered into the world, and the relationship between mankind and God has been broken. That means that also relationships between men and women and women and men will be broken as well. And sometimes divorce is necessary because it's life-giving and it's the only way to survive. It shouldn't happen, but sometimes it's necessary. In verse 9, Jesus gives an example of when it is entirely um, appropriate, when it's allowable. Jesus says when one of the marriage partners commits adultery, then it's allowable. If someone's committed adultery, then divorce may well happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is another passage where Paul says, here's another time when it's allowable, when, when one of the marriage parties um, separate, they leave. And some people say that that means physically only. Other people say it means emotionally. Some people say there are other rendering of that verse as well. But these are two examples that Jesus and then Paul gives for appropriate divorce. And it's life-giving and it's necessary. And one of the things that divorcees, whether a man or a woman, finds so hard, given those two reasons, is when other people, maybe themselves, have divorced for other reasons. What about then? What about if my divorce or a divorce of someone I've heard about, I'm asking for a friend. What about if those, their divorce doesn't fit those two allowances? What about then? And that's a hard question. I want to answer it quickly and as insufficiently as I can. Sometimes people get divorced for other reasons. That's always painful. And there's absolutely no room in the church for anyone to look down their noses at a divorcee. It's heartbreaking divorce. No one has enters into it carelessly. No one enters into it lightly. There are always tears. There are always repercussions, especially when children are involved. And the last thing a divorcee wants or needs, man or woman, is for Christians to look down their noses at them. For some Christians to say, oh, they didn't try hard enough. For other Christians to say, if only they worked harder, then their divorce wouldn't happen. What does God think about divorce? Here's what God thinks about divorce. Do you know that God is a divorcee? God is a divorcee. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, God divorces Israel because of their behavior and their spiritual adultery against himself. God divorced his people. 
There was a covenant renewal ceremony as well. That's not the end of the story. But there is no place in our hearts as Christians to make life hard for people that have experienced the pain of divorce and all that that entails. No reason or no footing for us to look down on anyone, to look through them, to think that we're better than them. They need love and support like married people do, like single people do as well. And one of the implications of us learning that God also is a divorcee, if God has the audacity to call himself a divorced person, that means there's no shame in being someone who's a Christian who's divorced. That means there's no shame in someone who's not a Christian and is divorced. God is not afraid to call himself a divorced person. But what if your divorce has not lived up to these two clauses? Talk about unbiblical divorce. Well, let me tell you the story of David. King David, one of the most interesting things about his uh, life is how his relationship with Bathsheba began. He fell in love with a woman called Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her and then he organized her husband, who was living at the time, to be killed so that he could have her all for himself. I mean, the whole relationship started off not just on the wrong footing. He was knee deep or neck deep in sin. But he saw her and lusted after her and had to have her. But that's not how the relationship ended. David repented. He confessed his sin, not to someone else horizontally. He confessed his sin to God. He wept tears of repentance. And God in his goodness and by his grace blessed that marriage. This started off in such a wrong way. From that marriage came King Solomon. From Solomon's family line came King Jesus. No one who's ever come to the feet of Jesus has walked away, perished or diminished. Jesus is always life-giving. So if your marriage has not ended in divorce, don't feel shame. Come to Jesus afresh. No one perished at his feet. No one who came to him for forgiveness. No one who came to him with tears he ever drove away. Your divorce may not have fitted those two categories, but come to Jesus afresh. And he loves to take people like me who are broken, rebellious sinners, and make them into new people. And he can do that to you too. But what about singleness? As we close, Jesus says something very radical to single people. What in the world does Jesus say about this eunuch stuff? Beginning in the verses 9, 10 and 11. Let me paraphrase just for speed. Jesus says some people are unable to marry. They're physical eunuchs. Some people uh, spiritually are not called to marry. The, the power of the kingdom of heaven is so bright in their hearts that God enables them to live lives, lives that are satisfied in him as an unmarried person. And that's a wonderful gift. And then Jesus has this question to him that's asked in verse 10, if this is the case, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, then why marry at all? It's better not to marry. And Jesus, probably with his hands in his hair, says, seriously, you don't understand? That's not what I was saying at all. The only people who can be unmarried are those who accept it. The only people from 1 Corinthians 7, from the quill of the Apostle Paul, the only people who can remain unmarried are those who are satisfied in Jesus so much that they're not bitter that God has not provided for them a marriage partner, man or woman. They refuse to rage at God and they're satisfied in him. And with that satisfaction and with that freedom, with that liberty, 
they are consumed not with wanting a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. They're consumed with the kingdom and they use all their liberty and all their resources and all their freedom to serve him. So if you are single, if God has enabled you to be single, can I encourage you afresh? Be single for the kingdom. Don't be single through gritted teeth. Don't shake your fist at God saying, why? If God never provides for you a married partner, you're not a second division. You're equal in created dignity with everyone who's married. No one in the church should or will look down on you. You are loved and treasured by God and you have to use your freedom for him. Be consumed with God's goodness and use your freedom for the kingdom. Because relationships, whether we're single, whether we're divorced, whether we're married, they're just hard work. They're always hard work because we live in a sin-stained world. And here's the principle for making relationships work. Matthew 6, 33. Jesus said this earlier in Matthew's gospel. Regardless of our relationship status, this is the priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Put Jesus first, put second things second, and third things third. But if you choose to put the second thing and the third things first, you'll get nothing. But if you put Jesus first, whatever relationship you're in, you get everything because you get him.